You know, we began this book by looking at the word genealogy, realizing that Matthew is telling us an origin story about ourselves and about God. He said, this is the genealogy, which is the word genesis or origin. This is the genesis of Jesus Christ. Then he comes back in chapter 2, where we were last week, and he uses the same word. Now, in English, it looks like a different word. Jesus was born, but it says Jesus was originated or Jesus was genocide. His origin story began in Bethlehem. But like quoting a movie, you know, when you hear a movie, you immediately know what movie they're talking about, if you've seen it before. For the Jewish person, that often there would be phrases used that would be quotes of the Old Testament. And it would be like quoting a movie or hearing a song. And if you were a Jew reading chapter 2, verse 1, and you saw Jesus was born, you would immediately like hearing this. Jesus was born, da-da-da-da, da-da-da-da. You would hear a tune playing in your head. Because if you were Greek... You primarily read the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the, of the Old Testament. And this exact phrase, Jesus was born, is the exact phrase from Genesis chapter 5, verse 1. This is the origin, this is the genesis of Adam's family. This is the genesis of Adam's family. Adam who brought death into the world. Adam who brought, who brought all the problems we have. We are now hearing in chapter 2, the new Adam. The new Adam. And the new family, filled with Jews and Gentiles and filled with people who are scoundrels and people who are rebellious and people who are, are, are religious, all are welcome in his family. So that's where we were last week. We got to realize Jesus is inviting us into his family. He's been born in Bethlehem. The wise men were there. And really when we're looking at the entire book of Matthew, he's been laying out the course that Jesus is related to Abraham, to David, and now we're going through a series of chapters where he's going to be connected to Moses. As you look at this hole, you can see it's filled with hazards, right? We've got an alligator. Both Moses and Jesus were saved from being killed at birth. They're both going to come out of Egypt. They're both going to encounter God in a water feature, a baptism in the Red Sea. They're both going to go through the wilderness. They're both going to climb a mountain to deliver God's law. Moses is trying to show you that Jesus is related to the, the leaders of the Old Testament, but he's far more than that as well. But look at all those hazards. What we're going to find today is that God doesn't remove hazards most of the time. God doesn't remove hazards. He plays through the hazards. Not only for us, but we're going to see it for his own son. Hazards are moving too slow, but he doesn't remove them. He plays through. He shows his purpose accomplished in overcoming those hurdles. But those hazards are there. We're going to find the same way he didn't protect his son and Mary and Joseph from hazards. Instead, he played through with them. He'll do the same thing for us. But it means that hazards are inevitable but they're also playable. So we're going to go three hazards today. The sand trap, the alligator, and this wicked dog leg they go through and what God is doing. So let's begin by looking at what God's doing with the sand trap. Because we're going to find that they are in the middle of the desert, in a particular place in the desert that's filled with sand. Out of the sand trap, it's here in this beginning section of the second half of of Matthew chapter 2, we're going to find that Jesus went into bondage for us, Egypt, and then he came out of bondage for us here at age 2 or 3. 
So to understand this, you need to know that Herod, we got introduced last week, Herod is the ultimate satrap. This is the ultimate person you would not want hunting you. If you were to pick every tyrannical leader in all of human history, Herod would be at the top of the list as the worst person you'd want hunting you. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise! Take the young child and his mother. Flee to Egypt. Stay there until they've already traveled to Bethlehem. They've already had their life torn upside down by betrothals and divorces. And, and they're back together and, and the wise men showing up. And now they're going to have to take a journey 450 miles away to probably the west side of Egypt. And to stay there until God gives you word. Why? Because Herod is seeking the young child to destroy him. Now, for you and I, we're like, yeah, it's a Christmas story. Let me tell you a little bit about Herod and why he's the last person you would ever want hunting you and why the stakes are so high. Let me take you to just two palaces of Herod. You can see on the left-hand side are his personal headquarters and bedrooms overlooking the Dead Sea. This is just one of multiple fortresses he builds to keep control of power as he reigns over that section under Caesar Augustus' permission. Look at all the storehouses. He had enough storehouses for years of food so no one could take possession of this fortress. Up here in Masada... He digs 11 fully functioning swimming pools in the middle of the desert. He has a fully functioning sauna where he is boiling water in the desert at 6 BC. Everything about Masada was designed to show his control over his empire. There are water reserves he's dug down into the solid rock here that can hold 12 to 15 full-size school buses. This was a fortress recognizing his power. And he would come against anyone who tried to even be a threat to that power. So much so that here at Masada, overlooking the Dead Sea, he will personally slaughter his brother. He will kill his brother-in-law. And of his ten wives, he will strangle two of his boys personally. Because he thought they were a threat. And he, sitting out here, overlooking the Dead Sea in his royal quarters, was always afraid that someone was trying to take or someone was trying to take possession of his kingdom. But his biggest fear is that he'd be forgotten. So he built another fortress here at the Herodian. This mountain did not exist prior to Herod taking possession. He built that mountain bucket by bucket, piece by piece. He knew he was hated by the Israelites because he bought his way to be their king. So he made this Herodian to commemorate himself when he died. But he was afraid no one would mourn him when he died. So he took 70 prominent loved leaders in Jerusalem, brought them to the Hippodrome, and commanded they would be killed the day he died, so that at least people would be crying on the day of his death. His wife Miriam, he killed her. And he went so insane from his paranoia that he took her body's ashes and put them in a big jar of honey 
that he ate every morning with his toast. And he actually thought he could market that to the Roman Empire. And people are like, I don't think there's much market for that kind of thing. And here at the top of the Herodian, he builds this palace. And the reason he built that mountain hundreds of miles away from Jerusalem and built it so tall is he wanted to look down on the mountain that is Jerusalem. And this is the man who's hunting Jesus. Probably even by today's standard, the wealthiest man who's ever lived. Greatest architect who's ever lived. And he's trying to kill Jesus, Mary, and Joseph. Who could outsmart him? Well, what we're going to find is that if it's not bad enough you're being hunted by Herod, now they're going to escape to Egypt. This is like coming from one sand trap into another. You see, Herod was controlled by Caesar Augustus, who was friends with Herod and gave Herod his position. In Luke chapter 2, verse 1, it tells us, It came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. In 31 BC, what we find is that Augustus defeated Mark Anthony and Cleopatra and united the empire down in Egypt. In fact, this particular uh, relief portray it has Augustus portrayed as the pharaoh of Egypt. So Herod is still going to try and make his way there. So look what happens. When he arose, Joseph, he took the young child and his mother by night, obeyed God, and departed for Egypt. And was there until the death of Herod the Great. You've got to keep track of them all because Herod names all his kids Herod and all his daughters uh, after uh, Herodias, uh, Herodian Noel. So <laughs> Herod the Great has now died that it might be fulfilled. And I put this golf ball every time we see fulfilled. It's Matthew's favorite word. It might feel like God is not in control. We got hazards ever. We got Egypt. We got Caesar Augustus. We got Herod. But Matthew reminds us. The Old Testament teed this up. God is again working through the hazards to accomplish his plan. This is what was fulfilled, which was spoken of by the Lord through the prophet Isaiah. I'm sorry, Hosea, saying, out of Egypt I called my son. Now, if you go to that passage in Hosea 11, it's pretty amazing. It's a very tender passage where God says, I called my son out of Egypt I loved him, I cared for him, I set him up, I healed him, and yet he kept abandoning me for idols and Baal worship over and over again. And I just kept pursuing. So now Jesus is going to identify with us that going into the sand trap of Egypt, and God's going to call him out of Egypt so that we can trust God to call us out of Egypt. But to do that, they've got to get from where they are to probably the west side of Egypt without getting killed by Herod. Let me show you what that path would have looked like. All right? How hard would that have been? You and Joseph are in Israel. But remember, you're from the town of Nazareth. And up in Nazareth, you're going to have to take a two-year-old 450 miles by foot. If you follow that track you see in the blue, that's an actual ancient track that can still be hiked even to this day. They would have made their way to Samaria on their way to Bethlehem. When they arrived there, Samaria would be known as a very divisive place where people divided because it was, do we worship here in Samaria or do we worship there in Jerusalem? A lot of division. Jesus will, will break a lot of molds by going to Samaria and talking to a woman at the well in Sychar. They'd continue. 
And they're not even close to beginning the journey as they make their way down to Jerusalem. Now remember, they were in Bethlehem, but they had to make their way to dedicate Jesus in Jerusalem. This is where Herod's reign was in Jerusalem. But when they passed by Jerusalem, they probably went about 30 to 40 miles to the west of the Mediterranean seaside to avoid him. When they came to Bethlehem, you can still see the Roman roads today there in Bethlehem. That Mary and Joseph probably walked on this very road on their way to escape Herod. Some people think they traveled with caravans during that time just to stay safe. As they left Bethlehem, they're still nowhere near the south side of Israel, let alone toward Egypt. So again, imagine keeping a two-year-old entertained as you make it to the coast. As you arrive here at the coast, sure enough, the Roman road still exists there, caravan. They probably couldn't afford a horse. They probably couldn't afford a camel. They were poor. However, remember, God gave them gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And it was those resources that's probably going to finance this entire two-year journey hiding in Egypt. God provided even before the hazard had come. They're going to leave here in Escalon, and now they're going to head to Gaza. And we know Gaza because it's in the news, but Gaza's been all through the Bible. Samson uh, spent most of his time in Gaza dealing with the Philistines back during his day. And now you start to see the train changes as we're heading toward desert. Not just rocks, but now it's starting to look a little more like sand. But they're still not in Egypt. So they're going to travel there, and now they're going to make their way just as they go through the sand. Again, traveling this entire distance by foot slowly hundreds of miles more yet before they get just to the east side of Egypt. And many people think that this is where they ended in this location. In fact, the Coptic Christians, which is a kind of a denomination of Christianity historically, they say this location, you can see these temple ruins, that this was a place that Mary and Joseph and Jesus came and all of the idols were shattered, fulfilling a prophecy of Psalms 19, that when he comes riding on the clouds, the idols will be shattered. Probably oral tradition, not historic. That's probably going to happen in the second coming. Now, most people think he actually traveled to the west side of Egypt, which means going all the way across that Mediterranean fertile plain. That would have been another 100 miles to Alexandria. It's there in Alexandria that there was a Jewish community existing during that time that had been there for a long period of time in Egypt. There's a gigantic synagogue there uh, in modern day that represents the community that was there even in Jesus' day. And many people think Herod sent his spies to try and find them here, and so they had to hide out in the cave. And as what often happens, they turned it into a big religious ceremony, but this might be a very cave that Mary, Joseph, and Jesus hid while they were in Egypt from one sand trap to another. You see, the Christmas story is a story of real people going through real difficulty and real challenges. What can we learn? What are the lessons from the sand trap in our life? Well, I think number one, I wish this wasn't the case, but we need to expect hazards. Find it says, Herod will seek. God says, I'm not going to keep you away from hazards. I'm not going to remove the hazards. Herod's going to seek you out. So in life, expect hazards. Number two, when you're going through hazards, keep a strong grip on God. What does Joseph do? He hears the angel speak, immediately flees. Immediately says, i got to trust God knows more than me how to play through this one. Keep a strong grip on God. And you're going to see God tells him again, I need you to move again in just a few verses. 
Thirdly, hazards are part of his plan. Fulfilled, fulfilled, fulfilled. Three times it shows up just in this little section we're reading today. Each time a horrible hazard predicted and foreseen by God that's part of the story, not a sidetrack to the story. It's hard to remember this when you're going through hazards, sand traps, and you feel stuck. This is part of the plan. Things are not going according to schedule, God. But remember that Jesus went into the sand trap for us. He's experienced the same type of hazards. He wants to lead us out in his timing and plan. Well, that moves us from the sand trap to the alligator. The alligator is our next hazard. And here we see that Jesus enters hazards and he was rescued from hazards. While Herod, he wasn't rescued from Herod seeking him, he was rescued from Herod killing him. In the same way that Moses had Pharaoh trying to kill him when he was a child by throwing him into the Nile River to be eaten by alligators, Jesus will be attempted to be killed by Herod who's trying to destroy anyone trying to get as a threat to his reign. Here's the next part of the passage goes. Then Herod, when he saw that he'd been deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry. This is not a guy you want angry at you. He sent forth to put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem in all of its districts. Anyone living anywhere near Bethlehem who's two years and younger, calculating the date and time of the star showed to the wise men he would kill. Often people will say, well, how can you trust the Bible? We don't have a record of this. This is the smallest killing Herod ever did. He killed so many people so often, and Bethlehem was barely a town of 400 people. But he wanted to make sure he got anyone in that vicinity. From two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. Herod wants to throw him to the alligators. And just when you think, oh my goodness, we are off the plan. God has left the building. God is not here. This can't be what God's trying to do. There shows up that word again. The Old Testament teeing up the ball for the New Testament to drive it home. Then it was fulfilled. Even Herod's evil fulfilled how God foresaw the future. And this one's a pretty tough one. The word spoken by Jeremiah, the prophet saying, a voice was heard in Ramah. Lamentation. Weeping. And great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children. Refusing to be comforted. Because they are no more. Surely the death of all these children can't be part of God's plan. And God is never the author of evil. God doesn't want this to happen, but God did know it was going to happen. He is going to work even in the midst of this horrific, terrible thing. And already in this chapter, just chapter 2, we've learned again about Isaiah. Things he predicted hundreds, seven, eight hundred years before Jesus even born. Incredible details about Jesus. His name, how he teaches, where he's born how he lives, how he dies. We heard from Hosea today, out of Egypt, I called my son, in a book about how God loves the unfaithful wife that is you and I. And now we have one from Jeremiah, that even 
God will not be protected by tragedy. He enters into a world filled with tragedy and pain. Matthew is showing us that God did not remove the hazards. He knew about them. He worked through them. But even now, Jesus, in his life, in his death threats, in the circumstances surrounding him, even here, in his time in Egypt, he is still fulfilling God's plan. It is hard when you get kicked in the teeth to believe that God still has a plan, that God can still work. But the word fulfill reminds us that God can still fulfill his purpose even in the midst of the worst of tragedies. And here in this passage, I think we again have some lessons from the alligator. Jesus enters our hazards. We don't serve a God who watches from a distance, but a God who entered into pain, knows what it's like to lose a cousin to tragic death in John the Baptist. He knows what it's like to be betrayed. He knows what it's like to be a man of sorrows. And in that, we can know that the God we serve is a God who gets in the rough with us. And when you go through hazards or tragedies or horrible things around you or surrounding you, hazards don't mean you're always off course. It can mean that God is playing you through some of those difficult things in your life the same way he did for his son. When I'm tempted to raise my fist and say, God, I don't deserve this, I look to Jesus and say, actually, there's only one person who really never deserved this. And they crucified him. Why would I think that I'm in a different category or a special category more than the Son of God? It's funny, I, I'm not much of a golfer, so those of you who are golfers will, will, will realize that my expertise is in goofy golf, not regular golf. So if I miss, misspeak in the golf terms, my apologies. But here's a picture of me looking like a golfer. So that's my buddy Danny. I've known him since I was 20. Danny grew up on the golf course. He's a partner in an architectural firm down in Orlando, and so we went out golfing together. So we're golfing, and he's golfing, and I'm following along. You know, he told me I'm not allowed to throw the ball, even though it would have helped expedite the game. So we come across this lake, and I'm like, hey, down here in Florida, I, I don't see a lot of, of, of fences around this golf course. Like, you ever seen an alligator at a golf course? He's like, oh, yeah. What do you do? Do you call, like, animal control, or what do you do? He's like, eh, just kind of par for the course. Really? Yeah. There's another guy, he's a surfer, so he's been teaching me how to surf the last couple of years, and, and he surfs at Smyrna Beach, which is where all the Orlandoans go. And I'm like, Smyrna Beach, I looked it up, that's the number one shark attack capital in the world. I said, aren't you concerned, like, couldn't you go to the number two shark capital place to surf? I said, like, why would you go there? Why do all you Orlandoans go to the shark place? He's like, eh, it's just par for the course. He just learned that's what you expect in a broken world. You and I might say, it doesn't sound very wise. But there's something about understanding that this world has hazards and challenges and difficulties that we can be prepared for. Now, I, if I see an alligator on the golf course, am going to be done golfing for the day. <laughs> I can't speak to the rest of you. I might expect them, but I don't need to stick my head in their jaw. The alligator. Thirdly, we get to this wicked dog leg. This is pretty amazing. You only kind of see this on a map. But 
I kind of like the idea that, you know, God, here's where I am. Here's where I'm going. Let's make it a straight line. I'm always looking for straight lines. God is rarely about straight lines. You're going to see the path he has Mary and Joseph and Jesus on is a wicked dogleg to Branchville. Let me show you what happens here. We see another fulfillment. Now Herod was dead, Herod the Great, not his sons, the other Herods. So behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to a dream in Joseph, now in Egypt, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother. Go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the young child's life are dead. Then he arose, and he took the young child and his mother, and they came into the land of Israel. Now when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea, instead of Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned by God in the dream, he turned aside into the region of Galilee. Now, now catch this. God says, all's clear. You can leave Egypt. He comes back to Israel. And God already knew who was reigning. But it's a surprise to Joseph, so God gives him another comment. Hey, by the way, another dream. Even though you're in Israel now, I want you to head up north. Like, why does God just tell him from the very beginning, avoid the south section, head directly to, Beth, to, 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 to Nazareth? There's this wicked dogleg that requires two dreams from God. So let me show you that on a map. So remember, they were in Bethlehem, where Jesus was born, went up to Jerusalem to have him dedicated, and now they've made this travel all the way over to Egypt. All right? So just think, if this is a golf course, you're starting in Bethlehem, you've got to make it all the way over to Egypt, but your final destination to sink the hole is in Nazareth. This is a wicked dogleg. This is quite a journey. So he makes them all the way over to Egypt, and then he gives them a, a dream. It says, all right, Herod the Great's dead, head back. So they head back. Hey, we'll stay in Bethlehem. But when they arrive, this whole section is now controlled by one of Herod's sons, Herod Ar Archelaus. He divided the section into four parts. They're called the Tetriarchs because it's this Tetra, four different ones of them. And it's actually a fifth if you count another part of the party. But so Herod is here, and he's in control of this whole southern section. So now God gives another dream and says, all right, let's actually continue all the way up to Nazareth. Nobody went to Nazareth. King Solomon had sold this part of the promised land to Gentiles years ago. That's why it's called the Galilee of the Gentiles. And yet in the middle of the Galilee of the Gentiles is this town called Nazareth, which literally means Branchville. Can anything good come from Branchville? And look at this journey God has had his son and family on. It's then Matthew writes, And he came and dwelt in the city called Nazareth. That it might be fulfilled. Here's another golf ball. Another Old Testament setup here. How is him in Nazareth being a fulfillment of Scripture? He tells us this is what was spoken of by the prophets. And see the big S? There's actually three different places. One in Isaiah and another one in Zechariah. We'll see those in just a second. He quotes it. There shall come from a rod from the stem of Jesse... And a branch shall grow out of his roots. All right, so be, we already know that. He's already related to Jesse, which means he's related to David. But there's more than that, he said. 
Remember, Isaiah told us he would be born in the, in the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, which is this area in the Galilee of the Gentiles. This is all fulfilling what was prophesied 800 years earlier. Here's what it says in Zechariah. Behold the man, the Messiah, whose name is the branch. I thought it was Jesus. I thought it was Christ. I thought it was Emmanuel. It is. And it's the branch. From his place he shall branch out. And he shall build the temple of the Lord. Yes, he shall build the temple of the Lord. He will bear the glory and shall sit and rule on his throne. So he shall be a priest on his throne. So he's a king and a priest. And the council of peace shall be between them both. Now the word here used of the branch is the word uh, in Hebrew, netzer, how we translate in English, which means branch. And when you translate netzer, branch, that's where you get Nazareth, Netzerville. So a little bit about Nazareth. Nazareth, then, the people in Nazareth knew this promise from Isaiah and knew this promise from Zechariah. So they named their town, which was right there in the Galilee of the Gentiles in the land of Zebulun, they named it Nazareth, which means the place where the branch of David lives. Small little town. 120, 150 people in those days. But the Nazarenes who lived there were royalty from around 100 B.C. with some of the descendants of David's relatives were born there or, or were residing there. This was a clan of David's descendants, but they were hiding out from, a, from the Herodians. So as we go through the book of Matthew, you're going to find a group called the Herodians who are aligned with King Herod. So they're hiding out from King Herod because they don't want Herod to kill them. So here God has led his son. Yes, he's Emmanuel. Yes, he's the Christ. Yes, he's Jesus. But he's from Branchville. Therefore, he's a Nazarene, a branch. Another thing that's interesting, it gets very complicated talking about the star that Mary and Joseph saw and, and, and the, the wise men saw. I'll just give you this one little picture. It's interesting. In some ancient pictures of Virgo the Virgin in, in the sky, the constellation, in Arabic, the whole constellation of Virgin the Virgo, or Virgo the Virgin, is called the branch in Arabic. Interesting. And in some ancient drawings of Virgo the Virgin, you can see she's holding oh, a branch. It's also interesting that the ancient Hebrew constellation name for this is Bethulah, which is pronounced Bethulah, which means the virgin. You just start seeing that whatever it was the wise men saw, whatever is God predicted, even the skies were testifying that a virgin would bring forth the branch. All in fulfillment of exactly what Hosea and Jeremiah and Isaiah and Zechariah said. So what does that mean for you and I? It means there's something we have to remember. When you're caught in a sand trap, and you will be, if you're not right now, when you're facing an alligator, and you might be, when you face a wicked dog leg where you thought God was taking you here and he took you here and then he took you there. Remember, God knows what it's like. And God knows what he's doing. 
God knows what it's like to be in that sand trap. God knows what it's like to face that alligator. God knows what it's like to be drug around 450 miles when you're two years old. The ultimate family road trip. But God also knew what he's doing. He had a plan to bring about salvation to the world. That you and I are here today because God didn't remove those hazards. He played through those hazards. So remember, whatever you're facing, whatever hazard it is, God knows what it's like. He can identify with us. He's a high priest who sympathizes with us. And he knows what he's, what he's doing. He's fulfilling a plan that's beyond our comprehension. We're in a series at our exploring service called The Lost Art of Friendship. We started that series. We had two women in our church who shared just different hazards they've been going through. A medical crisis. They came back a second and a third time. Another person talked about family crisis with kids and marriage. And how in the midst of these challenges, in the midst of these hazards, in the midst of these heartaches, they need to lean into each other. They need to get faith and encouragement from one another. See, this all sounds theoretical, but when it's personal, when you're in that sand trap, you need someone else to encourage you. Just remember, God's still here. God's still got a plan. I don't know what it is, but God will be faithful. It's such a powerful testimony we did about four or five weeks ago at our, at our exploring service. As you heard, real people in our church going through real hazards in their life and how together as friends in small groups, in connections point, they're able to help each other remember that God knows what it's like and God knows what he's doing. I was reading the story of uh, the poet Longfellow. He's famous for a lot of things. He's famous for that song, I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. But he wrote that song after a long dry spell of not writing any poetry or any songs. His life is filled with tragedy. He lost his first wife who died while she was miscarrying one of their children. He was devastated. He found love again. And he had kids and he loved being a dad and he loved being a husband. He had a wonderful marriage. And then his wife, through a whole tragic accident, had a fire go through their house. And he came in and she was actually on fire and he threw himself upon her to cover her up. And he actually burned his face and started wearing that beard, which he's known for, just to cover up all the scars. But even with what he had done, she still passed away a few weeks later. He then endured the tragedy of the Civil War, and even though it had a just cause, he got to see people from the North and the South, more Americans killed in the Civil War than all our other wars combined. He just saw tragedy everywhere. And one day, as he just was giving up hope on God, he heard the bells ringing for Christmas. And God somehow broke through the fog and the sand traps and the challenges and the hazards he was in. And those bells became a reminder that God was still here. That he would see his wife, his wives again. That despite the tragedy, God can even bring glory at a challenge. And he wrote the song we sing at Christmas, I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day, as a reminder that he was going to trust God despite the hazards he's been through and the hazards to come. God knows what he's doing. And God knows what it's like. Let's pray. Father.
teach us how to trust you in our hazards. Teach us that we're not in some special category that your son wasn't. And teach us that you've got plans that are bigger than we can even think or imagine. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.